Hi, this is Jeff Kober, and we welcome you to this Disney at Work podcast. In our last Disney at Play podcast, we spoke of Pleasure Island at Walt Disney World and its various offerings. We talked about the clubs, the food and beverage, retail, and other entertainment. And we spoke about how it came to be and how it competed against Orlando's Church Street Station. In this podcast, we look how well this concept was accepted by the public and how initially the nighttime venue failed to deliver. We talk about Michael Eisner's own Funmeister and how he turned around the club and created what was a fairly successful venue for well over a decade. And then we talk about what factors ultimately led to the end of Pleasure Island. Join us in this podcast for What Saved and Killed Pleasure Island. Again, you might want to reference our own um, DisneyAtWork.com site where we have outlined this podcast plus included some important links and uh, images that we'll reference as we go through uh, this podcast. And we also invite you to go ahead and, uh, and uh, make sure that you subscribe to Disney at Work as well as DisneyAtPlay.com so that you are made aware of upcoming podcasts as they are um, made available, as well as posts that we have on Disney at Work and Disney at Play. Well, let's talk about um, what saved Pleasure Island. Initially, guests didn't know what to make of Pleasure Island uh, as it opened in 1989, and its individual club entry was confusing. Now, to understand this, I want to reference... Uh, David Koenig's terrific book, Reality Land. It is probably been the most comprehensive um, and truthful uh, outline of Walt Disney World over the years. Um, and uh, it has been a source of, of great information and understanding for me. But we read from him that Pleasure Island, quote, Pleasure Island ended up opening the same day as Disney MGM Studios. Uh, and by the way, actually, it had been delayed um, uh, considerably in its opening. But he, he goes on to say that it opened the same day as Disney MGM Studios, May 1st, 1989. It's cost more than triple the original estimate of $30 million. All the attention of the press and public, however, went to Disney MGM. Most guests who did discover Pleasure Island either didn't quite understand or didn't care to pay for what the area had to offer. Its walkways filled with families and teens, the same demographic as the theme parks. Unfortunately, what uh, this unfortunately was not an audience willing to pay a nightclub cover charge. $6 for one club, $10 for three clubs, or $14.95, the same price as Church Street Station, for six clubs. For them, it was just another backdrop for family photos. The company's biggest asset, its squeaky clean image, was working against Pleasure Island. Disney reluctantly decided it had to more clearly define its target audience. 18 to 34 year olds and repackage 
Pleasure Island as strictly an adult attraction. Now you recall when we talked about it last week, we talked about a one-time price to come in to Pleasure Island, but that's not how it began. It began on a club, so you could walk through Pleasure Island, but to enter the clubs, you had to pay um, a club fee per, sort of like you do with Jelly Rolls um, over at the boardwalk. That didn't work, and having um, the teen club offering of um, uh, video Opolis East, at, uh, at Walt Disney, it just wasn't um, a workable solution. And uh, so enter in Michael Eisner, who um, thought that he should introduce a furniture salesman, yeah, a furniture salesman named Art Levitt to, to um, address the problems of this. Now, let me just start with who Art Levitt was and, um, and how he came to be. A few months after arriving at Disney, this is from, by the way, from Michael Eisner's work in progress, his own autobiography. And uh, so he notes, quote, a few months after arriving at Disney, I walked into a Knoll Furniture showroom at the Pacific Design Center with Jane, looking for furniture for our offices. Art Levitt, then in his early 20s, took care of us. The only salesman wearing a suit he was exceptionally knowledgeable about his product, and he also seemed to know a great deal about design. I happened to be looking for someone to help us upgrade design throughout Disney. As soon as we left, I said to Jane, this guy must run Noel out here, and he probably went to Yale School of Design. He also seems to have great people skills. I'm going to try to lure, hire him. When I returned home, I called Art and invited him to join Jane and me for dinner that night. He was a bit startled, but said yes. In the course of our meal, I discovered that Art had actually attended Long Island University, and his major was marine biology. After college, he'd lived in Hawaii for two years, studying girls and top tropical fish, and he had been working as a knoll salesman for just four months. Even so, I liked his enthusiasm and his confidence and decided to offer him a job as my personal assistant. He went on to kind of help um, Michael Eisner in those early years with um, kind of the design and architecture projects uh, that Michael wanted to play out with the hotels and, and office spaces that Disney designed. But then we go on to uh, Michael's description of this thing called uh, Pleasure Island. Uh, he talks a little bit about uh, Disney MGM Studios and how it came across and their effort to compete against Universal. As uh, he says, competition general, Sarnoff once said, brings out the worst in people and the best in products. So with that mentality, he chose to compete not just with Universal at the time, but Church Street Station. And this is the outcome of his efforts. And Quote, an even more dramatic example of the perils of trying to do everything the same way was Pleasure Island, the nighttime entertainment complex that we opened in 1989, at the same time as the Disney MGM Studios. On paper, it seemed like a terrific way to provide another amenity and to build a whole new business. 
from the time Frank and I first began visiting Walt Disney World, it had gnawed at me that there was virtually nothing to do at night. What happened, I always wondered, to those visitors who weren't satisfied to watch TV after dinner and go to sleep early? After several false starts, our team came up with the idea for a complex, for a complex of restaurants and clubs. Everything from comedy to dance to rock and roll to country and western to be located on a small island adjacent to the Disney Village shopping area. We took the name Pleasure Island from Pinocchio, end of quote. So you see, even though they give this whole Meriwether Pleasure story, in truth, it, it was kind of a big play on Pinocchio all along. The first problem, he goes on to say, quote, the first problem was that we went over budget and spent too much on the facility. Remember, uh, they said they exceeded three times their uh, original $30 million budget. Beyond that, our theme park operators had never before tried to create entertainment for a more sophisticated young adult audience. Let me just stop here and say, uh, I've been through Pleasure Island many times, and I found nothing very sophisticated about the audience who chose to go there, but that's neither here nor there. He goes on to say, Pleasure Island lacked any kind of excitement or edge. After months of hectoring park executives about the problem, and I got to stop here and just talk about this. I don't think park executives from Dick Nunes on down embraced Pleasure Island in the least. I think after spending decades refining and creating this family brand, to have Pleasure Island just stuck in the middle of Walt Disney World was just, um, it was to them a wart in the entire Walt Disney World experience. So I'm not surprised that, uh, that they really, in my opinion, never really embraced the project, which will go on later on to be part of what killed Pleasure Island. But at um, any rate, he goes on to say, after months of hectoring park executives about the problem, I decided to send Art Levitt. Remember Art Levitt, our furniture salesman and marine biology guy? Who else to turn around <laughs> a venue like Pleasure Island? So he says, I decided to send Art Levitt down to Orlando. Art lacked any operational experience, but he had credentials that Frank and I considered more important. He was single, 30 years old, and actually enjoyed going out at night. He decided to take a chance. We decided to take a chance on him, not least because neither of us knew anyone else young and single who might run this business. Quote, if I'm not hearing from Art Parks guys that they want to fire you, I told Art, then you're not screaming loud enough. End of quote. Now, let me just stop here and say, so the answer to this is not working with park operators or park management at Walt Disney World. No, no, the, the, the solution here is for Michael to stick a thorn into the middle of this and to see if it can make enough noise. Well, surprisingly, it seemed to work. Quote, Art had terrific promotional instincts and a willingness to take risks. He quickly added street games and outdoor entertainment to Pleasure Island. I remember the Rockwell, Rockwell particularly, 
and then uh, quote and instituted a New Year's Eve celebration every night. Now, let me just stop there and say that New Year's celebration, as silly as the idea was, really, really created a pivotal. Uh, experience in Pleasure Island. Otherwise, you were just kind of going from, from club to club. But here was a seminal moment being introduced. And that was, even though it wasn't at midnight most nights, it was usually at 11, it still was a smart idea to add the New Year's celebration. He goes on to say, quote, he arranged to have comedian Howie Mandel. Yes, by the way, that's the Howie Mandel that we know of in game shows today. He arranged to have the comedian Howie Mandel arrive one evening on a horse and ride through the complex. He brought well-known rock musicians in to play at the clubs and spin records as guest DJs. To create a sense of glamour and excitement, he hired drivers to park their white stretch limousines out front, ostensibly waiting for guests they dropped off. He even hired local models to come and hang out at Pleasure Island until it became a hip enough destination that it was no longer necessary to pack the house. Because, oh, let me just stop here and say, because sophisticated people like models hanging around. At any rate, I'll, also crazy. Then he goes on to say, when art pushed too far for Disney, hiring dancers just a bit too scantily clad, for example, we reined him back in. I've always found it easier to pull back an overly enthusiastic executive than to inspire a passive one to take action. Most of Art's ideas were on the mark. As the crowds and clubs grew, we moved forward on an idea that had first been raised several years earlier enclosing the attractions, and charging a single nightly admission, the way we already did at our other parks. By the time Art moved on in 1993, Pleasure Island was making a solid profit. End of quote. Um, this says so much about Michael Eisner and his approach to management. Um, and to be honest, it did work. Well, it at least worked for that time period. It made Pleasure Island a profitable entity for several years, but it didn't create a long sustainable experience that would become part of the Walt Disney World legacy. I've been reading the 75th anniversary, or the 75th, the 50th anniversary volume official volume of Walt Disney World, and they do mention Pleasure Island, uh, a little bit of Pleasure Island, or they mention a little bit of Pleasure Island and then uh, uh, much more about mannequins, or not mannequins, but um, Adventures Club, uh, because that was really the thing that, that people remember most in the legacy of Pleasure Island. But when you think about attractions that, I mean, when you think about the same attractions premiered at the same time. Disney MGM Studios, which became Disney Hollywood Studios, uh, Typhoon Lagoon, uh, and, and just a year or two prior, Disney's Grand Floridian Resort. These things are part of the fabric of pleasure of, of Walt Disney World. 
but Pleasure Island is not. And so what, what caused that? What ultimately led to uh, the last day of operation for Pleasure Island on September 27th of 2008? What led to its ultimate um, decline? The first was poor design. Now, uh, I say poor design because the design wasn't so bad originally. If the idea was we were going to get people to walk through Pleasure Island and then hopefully go into a club, if it had remained an open space, then perhaps that um, the flow of the guest experience wasn't too bad. However, when they made the decision to completely enclose Pleasure Island and make it a one-ticket uh, venue to get in at all, uh, to experience uh, New Year's Eve and, and all that the island had to offer, then going from the Walt Disney World Village Marketplace on over to Disney's West End, became incredibly painful. Essentially, what you had to do, if you recalled, I mean, during the day, you could walk through. Of course, walking through in the day, it looked, you know, dead. But in the evening, you had to actually exit out into the parking lot, go along the sidewalk, and then re-enter around the area of Planet Hollywood, and then experience uh, what was um, Disney's West, West Side. And that was really, really, um, really made the whole uh, downtown Disney, what eventually became downtown Disney, just really three separate uh, entire venues that were not well connected. So that issue of, of design and guest flow was probably the first thing. Second was poor revenue generation. Yes. It became popular, but where it became popular was with two groups of people. Uh, first were cast members who especially spent, as I mentioned, on Thursday night. Um, every paycheck comes out on Thursday, Epcot. Um, and then secondly, with annual pass holders. The pass holder concept was pretty cheap. They thought, okay, if we sell a very discounted annual pass, then we'll make up our money on, on drinks. And that didn't hold because annual pass holders and cast members, you know, they'd have a drink, but then they'd spend the whole evening, maybe a drink or two and spent the whole evening, but they needed to continually move um, revenue at the bar. And that didn't happen. And if there was any one thing that led to the demise of the Adventurers Club, especially because it could have continued on after Pleasure Island. In fact, I think it would have been great if it had. But the problem was it wasn't it wasn't selling enough alcohol. That was the problem. It was a poor revenue generator. And for that reason, um, it added to the challenge. Um, the other thing that um, happened at this time is, is that the very thing that created its competition, remember, um, competition leads to greater... Um, uh, to greater products. Well, the very thing that was its competition, Church Street St uh, Station, died um, and uh, was turned over to other um, uh, buyers and it it was it didn't maintain it. And, and 
possibly so because again pleasure island had succeeded but but what was it competing against and at the same time new options and offerings were coming about by the 2000s walt disney world had many additional offerings such as introducing its disney's boardwalk um, with its dance hall and with jelly rolls and then disney's west side hey i Let's just go to Cirque du Soleil instead. Let's go and um, see movies as the AMC movie theater or clubs that were there like Bongos with Gloria Stefan um, and uh, as well as other restaurants and venues. Um, really, why pay for the cover charge when there are other choices right there at Downtown Disney? Meanwhile, Universal Orlando came out with CityWalk. And all of those offerings were free. So you could, you know, get in free. Parking was free after 7 o'clock uh, in their parking structures. And then you could walk all of CityWalk and go everywhere you wanted to. And then if you wanted to go to a club, pay, pay to enter that club or pay for alcohol to go into that club. So... There were just other options and offerings taking away from Pleasure Island. Important to this was that um, the leadership changed. Michael Eisner moved on. He was the force behind this. He was the one who had passion around this. He left the company. Frank Wells had passed on. And uh, Art Levitt had moved on. So these people kind of left. And the people who were there who really truly held the heritage of Walt Disney World really never, never did embrace this, this club. I, you know, I barely saw executives from Disney show up in the theme parks. You can guarantee that they weren't showing up as sophisticated a group as they may have been. They were not showing up at Pleasure Island. That's for sure. And then finally, well, a couple more things. The people grew up. Uh, baby boomers they got too old. Um, Gen Xers, they ended up raising families and staying at home. And millennials, well, they party different than those who are Gen X, so they for sure aren't going to do what the, what, the, what the Gen Xers were going to do. And then uh, finally, uh, I think, and, and I've alluded to this previously, the whole thing was just off-brand. It was never an intellectual property of its own that aligned with Disney's heritage and brand of family entertainment, a place where everybody could come and enjoy. It, it just was off. And so as a result, these things would ultimately kill Pleasure Island. Now, in future episodes, and I, and I say this with a little humor because honestly, it did take us a long time to... Um, uh, to get to the second installment of Disney Springs. But we'll see how, really, its replacement has done fairly well in terms of creating a very large uh, entertainment, shopping, and dining venue as it unfolds eventually to become Disney Springs. But we got to talk about Disney's West Side, Disney's West End, and... Uh, that will be in our next installment when we talk about the heritage of Disney Springs. 
Well, this brings to an end our Disney at Play podcast, our Disney at Work podcast. We are grateful that you could join us and uh, we hope that uh, you will uh, stay in touch with our podcast. Make sure you subscribe. Check out our uh, offerings in terms of our Patreon group, which is the Wayfinder Society. We offer different uh, tiers to uh, join in and uh, and come check it out. Check out the site. You get a chance to take a look at a couple of uh, um, links that kind of give you an overview of what we have to offer with the um, Patreon group experience of the Wayfinder Society. Finally, thank you for being part. Thank you for joining and listening. We got more things to cover, so stay tuned the next days to come. And as always, follow the compass of your heart. Have a great day, and we'll see you real soon.